Uh, it's been a joy this summer um, to get to sit right here uh, just about every Sunday uh, and to hear from our lay pastors in the life of Mosaic. I, I hope it's been a joy for you as well. Um, I, I'll tell you, what you see in their preaching ministry it is really just a thimble of what pastoral ministry means for all of our pastors, including our lay pastors here in the life of Mosaic. And, and just to commend them to you, um, the, the true joy of getting to pastor at Mosaic, a huge part of that is getting to co-pastor alongside such faithful, godly pastors. It's a real delight. <clears throat> it's a treasure and it's a joy. And I have gotten over the last 12, 13 years of vocational ministry to spend a lot of time with pastors, both vocational and lay, people who serve the church full-time as their job and people who don't. And we are truly blessed by some incredible, faithful, wise, gracious, non-vocational pastors in the life of our church. It's a true joy to co-pastor alongside them, and the preaching ministry is really just a small piece of what that means in the life of our church. I hope that you will, and if you, if you haven't, it's okay, no shame. If you're a member in particular, I want to plead with you. Pray for your pastors. Pray for us. We need your prayer. We need your prayer. We're not like some sort of superhero spiritual class. We're just people. We, we cut and bleed. We hurt. We're wounded. We try to strive to lead with faithfulness and wisdom, generosity, humility, the fruit of the Spirit, and the qualifications that are enumerated in 1 Timothy and Titus. But we need your prayer. We need your prayer. So if you don't, would you pray for us? We'd be blessed by it. I know that we would. There's something that we all do every day in big and small ways, every single one of us. But when our attention is drawn to the riskiness of it, we are often startled. This act is often happening subconsciously. We don't realize that we are doing it until things begin to fall apart, until we encounter difficulty or disruption. This act is unremarkably normal until it becomes incredibly necessary, then it can begin to feel remarkably difficult. What do you think I'm talking about? Trust. Trust. Trust is unremarkably normal. We do it all the time until it becomes incredibly necessary, and then it begins to feel remarkably difficult. Every day, in big and small ways, you and I exercise trust. We sit on untested chairs. We read news reports of events we haven't seen. We eat at Chick-fil-A, assuming that the chicken will be fully cooked, right? We turn faucets, expecting that water will flow out. We turn keys and cars, expecting them to start. But when we encounter difficulty, when we encounter trial, sorrow, loss, disruption, inconvenience, all of a sudden, we start to feel our trust being tested. And it is in seasons of testing where we discover where our most fundamental and strongest trust are placed. Psalm 20 is an exposition of trust. And not just trust with all the lights on, but trust in a dark day, a day of trouble. And trust, as we've said before in here, is like an anchor. It's all about where you put it. Trust is like an anchor. It's all about where you put it. And if you put your trust in the wrong thing, you will be swept along. You will be tossed to and fro. You will be left stranded and disappointed. And this is a crucial part of what David wants us to see and consider in this psalm. So I'm going to read Psalm 20. 
And after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You're invited to respond, thanks be to God. The reason we do this is not just some cold, dead ritual. It's because we want to give thanks that God has not left his people in silence. He's spoken to us. So let me read Psalm 20. The words will be on the screen as well. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now in this psalm, there is one central call, and attached to that one central call are two promises. There is one central call, and attached to that call are two promises. Let's look at the central call first. In verses 1 through 5, we are hearing the psalmist plead with us, so to speak, plead with the congregation of the righteous, plead with himself in the quietness of prayer in which this psalm was almost certainly written. And the plea is this, Look to the Lord. Look to the Lord. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. It's simultaneously a petition. God, would you answer them, answer me in the day of trouble? It's simultaneously a petition and a blessing. May the Lord answer you on the day of trouble. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. He translates line one, which reads probably in your Bible and on the screen as, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Peterson's translation is, God answer you on the day you crash. God answer you on the day you crash. Have you had a day where you crashed? If you haven't, you will and I'm not speaking that over your life as some sort of prophecy. I'm speaking that as just it is the lived experience of broken people in a broken world waiting on the king to return and make all the sad things come untrue, to right all the wrongs. In this time between now and that coming day that is sure and certain, it is a part of the lived normal experience to have a day you crash. It is a part of our lived experience to find a day when the bottom falls out when our hopes are disappointed, when our requests and our petitions feel like they remain unfulfilled, when we find ourselves at the bottom, when we find ourselves beneath the bottom, feeling buried underneath what we thought would be the lowest of the lows. There is one central call that the psalmist has for us, and he is speaking particularly of the day we crash. He's speaking particularly of calling out to the Lord on the day of trouble. He is telling us that when everything is bottoming it out, 
when it feels like the sky is falling, when it feels like we cannot go any lower than we have gone, look to the Lord. Look at what's repeated on almost every line here. May the Lord protect you. May the Lord answer you. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send help. This is the language of request. It's the language of petition. It's the language of blessing. The psalmist is calling out to the congregation through his own prayer to the Lord. And he is saying, look to the Lord when you can't look anywhere else. Look to the Lord when everything else has let you down and disappointed you. Look to the Lord when everyone else has abandoned or forsaken you. And what do we bring to the Lord in those moments? Well, look at the scope of his request. What does the psalmist pray that the Lord would do? What is he petitioning that the Lord would do for himself and for the people? Well, look, it says that the Lord would answer on the day of trouble. That the Lord would protect, that the Lord would send help, that he would give support, that he would remember and regard with favor your worship, that he would grant your heart's desire, that he would fulfill all your plans, that he would fulfill all your petitions. This is an invitation. This is an invitation that is radical. It is to come to the Lord with confidence that he and he alone can bring you to the best end of your life. That he and he alone is the proper fulfillment of the deepest desires, requests, and petitions of our heart. And that he and he alone is capable of giving the good gifts we desire, which certainly are abundant, but always begin with his presence. God has many good gifts to give us that extend beyond his presence. But the fundamental gift that God has to give to you and I is not something other than God. It is God. That's the first and foremost gift that God has for you. And when you begin to find that God is the fundamental gift, the satisfaction of the deepest desires of our heart and mind, it seems like it is at that moment that God says, this person is primed and ready to receive the abundance of what I have for them. The psalmist is saying, yes, let the Lord answer you. Let the Lord protect you. Cry out to him for help. Cry out to him for support. May he look upon your worship with favor. May he grant your heart's desire. Fulfill all your requests and petitions. The psalmist is inviting us into a practice. And it is the practice of bringing our petitions, bringing our request, bringing our needs to God and trusting him with the outcome. And trusting him with the outcome. God gives us no assurances. When we bring our requests and our needs and desires to him, he gives us no assurances of the outcome except for one. Which is that wherever we are going, he goes with us. Wherever we are going, he goes with us. This reminds me of a story that if you've been at Mosaic for some length of time, you know it means a great deal to me because I recycle it all the time. It's not even in my notes. I'm just thinking about it right now. I'm thinking about it right now because it's a story that comforts and confronts me. It's the story of Moses having led the people out of Egypt and gone up the mountain. And as he receives the law, the Ten Commandments, the people are worshiping a golden calf. 
And when he comes down, God brings judgment on the Israelites. And Moses intercedes on their behalf that God would not destroy them for good forever. And God, he withholds his judgment on them. And a few chapters later, they're right on the cusp of entering into the promised land, of entering into Canaan. And Moses and God are having a conversation. And God tells Moses, I'm going to give you the land, but I'm not going with you. And do you know what Moses says? Then we don't want the land. Moses tells God, if we get everything but you, we don't want it. Now how often do I come to God and say, give me everything but you? Thank you for these good gifts, now stay out of my way. Thank you for your presence, now stay stay out of my plans. Thank you for salvation, now let me live my life on my own terms, ensconced in your blessing, but abstaining from your presence. The psalmist is reminding us, if you get everything but God, you end up with nothing. If you get God and nothing else, you end up with everything. The psalmist is saying, in the day of trouble, in the day in which every life raft and every life preserver and every flotation device looks more appealing, more strategically beneficial, more gratifying, more helpful than God, look to God. Look to God. And in the midst of this petition, at the end of verse 3, you see a word that you've become familiar with as we've studied these psalms these few summers, and it is a word Selah. Now, I didn't read Selah when I was reading through the passage. That's an interpretive choice. You read it or not, it's okay. It, it's, it's meant right there, whether you read it or not, to invite us to pause, to meditate, and to consider, to just linger a while on what has been said. Selah is a very counterintuitive thing for us to do. It's a very counter cultural thing for us in our present moment to just wait a moment we feel uncomfortable with it some of you while i was reading probably thought i lost my place it's perfectly reasonable assumption right to wait to pause to hold for just a moment in consideration the significance of this word is that it is an invitation to remember to meditate on to consider what God has said, what God has done, what has been said about who God is and what he has done. Charles Spurgeon, commentating on this word, says this, we are too much in a hurry to make good haste. A little pausing might greatly help our speed. Stay, there is a haste which hinders Rest a while, meditate on the sacrifice, and put thy heart right for the work which lies before thee. Selah. There is a haste that hinders. When we enter into the day of trouble, when we enter into the day of crashing, oftentimes the depth of our endurance of those dark days correlates significantly with the depth of our meditation on God and what he has done on the brightest ones. We find our ability 
to stand in trust on who God is and what he has done in the dark because we have done so in the ordinary days of light. There is a haste that hinders, and in our rush and our lack of thoughtfulness and meditation, we might find that the depth of our endurance is shallow, and yet God remains faithful as we'll find in this psalm. The first five verses of this psalm are a central call, one central call, and that call is to look to God, to reflect on him, to offer right sacrifices, to put your trust in his power. And this is specifically within the frame of reference, the context in the moment or event or day when it appears that things are crashing down around us. So before we move on, let me ask you, on the good days... Not in the days of trouble, on the good days, on the ordinary days, on the days of brightness. Where is your trust? You often don't have to think about it on those days. We can kind of just presume it. We can just kind of assume. We just move forward unthinkingly, subconsciously, unreflectively. But when the day of trouble comes, we are forced to grapple and to reckon yet again with the question of who or what is trustworthy. In the midst of all of this destruction, in the midst of all of this disappointment, where is our trust? Where does our trust go when we feel like we have nowhere to go? Because this one call comes attached with two promises. Look at it in verses 6 through 9. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven. With the saving might of his right hand. Look at the confidence of this language. Now I know he will, with the saving might. The psalmist is speaking with confidence about what he knows the Lord will do when we cry out to him in the day of trouble. So the first promise that comes with this central call is this. If you trust in God, no matter what happens, you will end up in victory. If you trust in God, no matter what happens, you will end up in victory. If you trust in God, no matter what happens, you will end up in victory. Now, does that victory mean it will conform with what you wanted? No. Does that mean that victory will look like what the world thinks is victorious? No. The victory of God often confounds the world. If you don't believe me, ask the martyrs of the early church, surrounded in coliseums by fires, swords, and lions, and yet proclaiming the victory of God. The victory of God often confounds what we would expect if we had our own desires fulfilled, what we think is best for us. It certainly confounds what the world believes is best for us or is most victorious. But here is what the psalmist has learned from experience. Mostly through suffering, God never abandons those who put their trust in him. He won't do it. It would be to go against his very nature, his faithfulness to his covenant, his chesed, his covenant faithfulness that he extends to his people in Jesus is unbreakable, it's unshakable, nothing can alienate us from it, nothing can divide it from us. 
It is what God has for his people. For those who put their trust in God, they will end up in victory. And it might be a world-confounding victory. It might be a victory that defies your own desires for your life. And yet, it will be the victory that God has for you. And it will be better than the deepest dreams you could have ever had or the deepest laurels the world could have ever given you. If you put your trust in God, no matter what happens, you will end up in victory. But that's not the only promise here. In verse 7, we get the signal of a second promise. And if the first promise is a promise of blessing, the second promise is a promise of curse. In verse 7, we hear some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The second promise is this. If you trust in anything but God, no matter how much you have of it, or how great it is in power and prestige, you will end up in defeat. If you trust in anything but God, no matter how much you have of it, or how great it is in power or prestige, you will end up in defeat. When the psalmist says this, can there be a time in Israel's imagination and in their history when a great power, a great power met with civilization-defining military might and chariots and horses had been triumphed over by the power of God? Could they imagine such a story? Can you think of one in Israel's own history? What would it be? Exodus event, parting of the Red Sea. You could have stacked up all the chariots and horses Not just then, but forever. They could have stood at the edge of the Red Sea. They could have driven in a straight line as fast as possible into infinity, and they would have never parted it. And yet the power of God shames the power of the world. What does trusting in horses and chariots really mean to us? Well, in this time, in David's time, to invoke a phrase like chariots and horses was a bit like saying in our time, missiles and tanks. It was a signal of military might. It was a signal of power. To say chariots and horses was to say, we got you beat. Okay? And in the ancient world, certainly chariots and horses were an absolute game changer when it comes to the military. So the psalmist, David, is saying, and he's speaking as a king, he's saying, listen, even if I were to face down an enemy that had chariots and horses, and even if they had more chariots and horses than I had, and even if those chariots and horses were better trained, even if there was a stronger army, I would not put my trust in them. I would trust in the Lord. Now, here's what's deceptive about trust. It's often easiest to trust those things that feel like we can wield them and still preserve our autonomy and our sovereignty. We like to put our trust in things that seem controllable. Because in truth, we really don't want God to be in charge. We want God to be all-powerful, but we don't want him to be in charge. Because if he's all-powerful but not in charge, we can use his power to do what we want. But if he's all-powerful and in charge, guess what? Then he's going to do as he pleases. We don't want that. Right? At least not by nature. There is a vain confidence and a deceptive confidence that is very easy for us to walk in. And that confidence can be tied to any number of things. I was rudely awakened to my vain confidence about six months ago. I'll give you an example. Some of you know that I occasionally, although this is not an invitation to take me up on a fight, I occasionally train boxing and jujitsu, and I really enjoy it. 
Now, I'd been training boxing for some time, and I had re been really having a lot of fun. I'd been growing in my confidence there. I looked over at the guys rolling on the floor in the robes with jujitsu, and I thought, these guys are just rolling around on the ground. <laughs> Man, I'm going to get over there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tax these guys. So I go into my first jujitsu class feeling a high degree of vain confidence. I walk up. I got my robe on. I felt like it was silly. I felt silly standing there. And they said, well, we're going to pair you up. It's your first class, right? I said, yeah. I said, we're going to pair you up with this guy. And this guy was maybe 130 pounds soaking wet, okay? And I thought, this is a terrible mistake you've made, right? Because I've got this guy. I got him right here, right? I mean, this is not going to be a battle. And for the next 45 minutes, this guy pretzeled me. He put me in every position, unimaginable positions. He was on my back. He was in front of me. He was on top of me. He was behind me. He was doing cartwheels. It was, he had a ball. He really did. And he put me in my place in a significant way. Um, I walked in there with a degree of vain confidence, and I was humbled. I was humbled, even when the odds looked like they were in my favor, even when it looked like power was on my side, I was quickly disillusioned of that idea. We can walk in vain confidence, and it might be how much money we have, it might be our work ethic, it might be our intelligence, it might be our power, our prowess, it might be what we own or what our parents own, it might be the things we've endured or the things that we have found unendurable. It could be any kind of status symbol. It could be how many people follow us on Instagram or like that Twitter post. It could be any number of any things, and guess what? They are all deceptive bids to get us to begin to make it routine, to put our trust in things that are not trustworthy. To put our confidence in things of which we should have no confidence. The psalmist is giving us two very different promises here. He's saying, look to the Lord in the day of trouble. And if you do, if you place your trust in God, no matter what, you will end up in victory with God because he will bring you through. But if you put your trust in anything else, no matter how much you have of it or how great it is, you will end up in failure because you'll end up without God. Who's writing this psalm? What's it say right there next to the 20 in your Bibles? A psalm of who? Say it louder. David. Now, what was David? A king. A king. The voice of the king is leading out in this song. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that this prayer, song, petition, request, blessing is coming from the voice of a king? I think it's because if even kings realize in the day of trouble that they have no power of which they can use to secure victory apart from God, I think those of us that are not kings and queens, it's probably as true of us as it would be of them. If even kings realize that there is a power that goes beyond anything they can control, that they desperately need on the worst days and the days of trouble and the days of crashing, then so must we. We spend so much of our time striving to try and overcome the obstacles we encounter and so little time bringing it to God in prayer. I wonder if part of the exhaustion of the modern Christian is that they have surrendered one of the most central blessings that God provides his people. His ear. His attention. 
is part of our fatigue that we believe God has called us to scale mountains that are unscalable by design, to overcome things that are meant to not be overcome by you and your power, and that maybe in those moments the invitation of God isn't for you to get bigger, better, faster, stronger, but to come to him in prayer. Where is your trust? Where is your anchor in the day of trouble and the storms of life? Is it accomplishments? Is it your work ethic? Is it money? Is it your physical health? Is it binging on the weekend? Is it the next vacation? Is it your kids? Is it your spouse? Is it a future that you believe will fully and finally satisfy? Where is your anchor in the day of trouble? Where is your trust? The psalmist is not saying that God is indifferent to the desires of our heart. God welcomes the desires of our heart, but if you make them divine, they will crush you and disappoint you. God welcomes our requests, but if you make them rules, they will crush you. God welcomes your needs, but if you make their fulfillment necessary for your joy, peace, or safety, they will let you down. Only God is big enough to be God for you. Only God is big enough to be God in the day of trouble. Everything else will fail. But because God is God and there is no other, he invites us through an incredible act of divine condescension. He leans his ear to his people and he says, trust in me. And on the foundation of that trust, bring me your desire. Bring me your request. Bring me your fears. Bring me your uncertainties. Bring me your worries. Bring me your anxieties. He invites our requests into his presence, not because he is seeking for us to grow independent from him, but because he is seeking us to grow dependent on him. This is what God is inviting. And the psalmist knows this. Coming back to Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, speaking about prayer and why we bring our prayers to God in heaven. This is what he says. God is in heaven, but our prayers can scale those glorious heights. Our need is great, but the divine arm is strong, and all its strength is saving strength. That strength, moreover, is in the hand which is most used and which is most used readily, the right hand. What encouragements are these for pleading saints? God is in heaven, but our prayers can scale those glorious heights. I'm reminded of the old song. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our griefs and sins to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. King David is a king who could not meet the deepest desires and needs of his people. But there is a king who can. King David petitioned and blessed his people saying, if you look to me, you will be disappointed as I have been disappointed in looking to other kings. But look to the king of kings. Look to the one above the heavens, not below them. Look to the king who sits on a throne, not in a place at a time, but forever and boundless in power. Look to this king who sits at the right hand of God the Father, this coming king 
one who would come from the Davidic line, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who sits at the right hand of God the Father. David, a king no less, was telling you if you put your trust in kings, even if they are good and even if they are strong, they will not be able to provide the rescue you so desperately need on the day you crash. But there is a king who can. There is a king who can, boundless in power, infinite in glory. And this king is a king of kings. He's a king forever. He's a king in the line of David. And this king is well acquainted with the day of trouble. Not conceptually, not abstractly. He's acquainted with the day of trouble because he has endured the day of trouble. He has been there. And we are invited into God's presence at the invitation of one who is a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, who has been at the depths and the dregs of death and despair. And he is inviting us into the presence of God. And we enter in on Christ's invitation. He is holding us a seat. He is reserving our spot. And in the midst of what feels terribly small, small to us in the inconveniences, disappointments, and yes, despairs of life. This king is inviting us into a courtroom of which we will be met with the blessed presence of God. And as Paul says in Romans 8, which we'll get to here in a couple of months, if he has given us his son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Where is your trust? Wherever it is placed, I implore you come to God in prayer and say I believe help my unbelief lesser trust have disappointed me and I have come to you because you will be faithful even when I'm faithless the great beauty of trusting God is that the power unleashed is not contingent on the depth of your faith in him but on his faithfulness to you and he is forever faithful let's pray Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and grace in Jesus. We thank you for the power of your word, which speaks over the millennia to the concerns and the anxieties of our heart. More often than not, God, I have found myself in a day of trouble, and I have reached for every lifeline but you. Forgive me, God. It seems that every time you prove your faithfulness to me, the enemy whispers the doubt and deceit of your power the next time. Help me to remember. And when I don't, thank you, God, for grace and that the streets of your kingdom are paved not with the gold of our faith, but the gold of your grace. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with